I have with me today NPR science correspondent Joe Palka. During his nearly 30 years at NPR, Joe has covered countless advances in engineering, basic research, and technological innovation. Throughout his career, Joe has written about many scientific discoveries across nearly every discipline, from medicine to astrophysics. In fact, a couple of years ago, we both endured the thin air in Chile's Atacama Desert to tour some of the astronomical observatories there. Joe, however, has a special connection to psychology, having earned his PhD from the University of California, Santa Cruz, where he worked on human sleep psychology. I invited him here today to talk a little bit about innovations in psychology, which is the subject of the most recent president's column in The Observer. Welcome, Joe. It's good to talk to you again. Yeah, nice to see you or talk to you as well. Before homing in on psychology, I have to ask your thoughts about last week's remarkable landing of NASA's Perseverance rover on Mars. I'm sure you've witnessed your fair share of planetary missions, but what was remarkable about February 18th landing on the red planet? Oh, you know, it's really hard to say because they're all uh, remarkable, as I, as I think I mentioned even on the air. I mean, it never gets old. Uh, there's so many stories in science that don't have a peg or a moment or a, something that, you know, has to happen right at that exact time or it doesn't work at all. And landing something on Mars is one of them. I mean, it's not like it's going to be at 3.55 p.m. or 3.56 p.m. Uh, and 20 seconds. It's going to be right at 3.55 p.m. And so you have this um, really complicated set of things with pyrotechnic bolts being cut and motors, rocket motors going on that, that really haven't done anything in months and radio equipment that has to find... I mean, not only did they find Earth with their radio, which I guess is pretty amazing anyway, but they found other Mars orbiters that were able to relay the telemetry coming back from the lander as it came down to Earth. And I just, something about that, and that that's happened before, not for the rover per se. They did it with something called Marco when the last... Uh, insight probe landed but but still i find it astonishing that you're not calling these descent uh by well here's the timeline and what should be happening they're calling it based on what they're actually seeing from the telemetry so i i find that very appealing and um that make this one to to me even more amazing focusing on that particular mission and sort of revolutions in science the, the reason it's there as a sort of a descendant of the Viking spacecraft, which landed on Mars way back in 76. Though this is separated like three and a half decades, they both have essentially the same mission, at least one of them, and that is to search for signs of life. Um, the results from Viking were initially you know, disappointing in this regard. How has science changed in that time? And what drove the engineers and scientists to want to try again? Well, I think you have to be careful. I don't. Th I think Viking, in fact, was trying to look for something that would say there was extant life on Mars, something that was living today, now. Whereas uh, the rover called Perseverance is all about looking for the conditions under which life might have once existed. So even though they call it an astrobiological mission, I think of it more as a geology mission because what they're doing is looking at rocks and looking for 
pictures of things like stromatolites, which might indicate that there was once a bacterial mat sitting at the bottom of this lake that was inside Jezero Crater 3.5 billion years ago. But I I think it's interesting. I don't think, and I've asked people about this, I don't think they would be able to tell you that something was alive, even if it was, because unless it had a you know arm and was waving at the camera, uh, <laughs> it doesn't have the kind of uh, markers that would pick up something in in real time that was breathing or or doing some sort of respirating uh, that would allow you to say, oh, it's alive. So there's that that distinction. I think is important. And the other thing is that even if it finds these things, which they think, even if they find something that looks like a unmistakable signature of something that was alive once, which they do see in rocks all the time, fossils, for example. Um, nobody's going to believe it until they actually clap their eyes on it or test it in the lab on earth. And that's why this mission is basically saying, well, yeah, we know that. So we're going to try to bring the rocks back, but not till 2031. So it's going to be a lot of patience, 10 years of patience before they'll be able to do the con confirming tests to say if they really did find signs of life. Well, let's take a little broader look then. And, uh, you know, I know since you have so much experience in variety of scientific fields. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about methodological innovations in science. So things that have given us the tools to do science a little bit better, to refine the scientific method, and to search for things we haven't seen before in ways we couldn't. So if I were to look back in the past 10, 20 years, things that you know come to my mind are, are things like CRISPR, which is the ability to edit DNA sequences, modify gene function, gravity wave detectors like LIGO, picking up ripples in space-time. And you know, I think this is something that um, we talked about or our president discussed in his column, and that is big data, uh, raw processing power. If you were to look back on that time, would you have any overlaps? Am I way off in my views? What has the methodology no. of science done? Well, I think these are, you know, I don't know if, so it's an interesting question. I don't know if I'd call those methodologies so much as tools. Um, inevitably, a new tool leads to new discoveries, I think. That's one of the things you can say for sure. Um, CRISPR allows you to study organisms and modify their DNA in a way that you didn't used to be able to. Um, just you, you might spend a career trying to get a gene out of or into some organisms um, be, the, the way it used to be, and now you can do it in a matter of days or weeks. So that's stunning, and and what you can do with it is a stunning. But and similarly with LIGO, which I think is a good choice, and there have been others. <coughs> I mean, in in I think the um, adaptive optics has done a lot for ground based optical astronomy. Um, Big data is important too, but when I think of methodologies, I mean I'm thinking more like the scientific like method of how do you set up an experiment to answer a question, or how do you set up a study to answer a question. And I don't know that those have changed so much. Um, the big data gives you a chance to ask what you might think of as unbiased questions, which is I'm not making any a priori assumptions about what I'm going to find from this data. I'm simply going to query it on X. And I find that kind of appealing, but but they did a lot of that um, in the Human Genome Project when they did these um, studies for 
finding you know, uh, SNPs, single nucleotide polymorphisms that varied in a consistent way across diseases. But when you're looking at billions and billions of data points, making sense of the ones that are really different versus the ones that are different by chance is really tricky. So, you know, I think the biological relevance of some of this still needs to be determined. And maybe that's where the methodology comes is how do you integrate this new data from these new tools with existing data? And uh, I guess that's, that's, I guess the other thing I was trying to think of others that I would put in the list, PCR was a pretty big one, polymerase chain reaction for amplifying DNA. That had a big, big impact. And DNA sequencing was another one um, that allowed, you know, we're 20 years on from the Human Genome Project, and that was a that was a milestone in many ways. So, yeah, I think I think new tools are always are always going to be valuable. I think we could focus a bit on neuroscience and, and psychology. Obviously, what we're most interested with here uh, in its column, Shinobu lists you know, the following innovations: things like in neuroscience, fMRI, EEG, and we we've taken a look most recently at. Uh, functional fMRI on on how it can be a predictor of uh, interventions, and it may not actually be the best way of, of judging that. Looking at perhaps more importantly and relevant is diverse samples going beyond these white males in developed countries. You know, we have to have ways of getting broader samples. And again, he brings up big data. So as a psychologist and a reporter, how do you feel about these as changes in methodology? You know, perhaps even from your time as actively doing research? Uh, well, I, uh, I think when we used to use, you know, uh, stone tablets and chisels to write our reports, it's been a while since I did any kind of real research. Um, <laughs> oh, now you're making me feel. Old. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, so I guess what I would say, and, and um, maybe, maybe having been in research, I bring with me a little more skepticism um, to what's actually been accomplished or what can be accomplished. And I, I don't want to put anybody off from doing their research. I think it's important. But but what we actually know about the brain is still pretty, pretty limited. And I remember when I first got to Nature and Nature magazine in 1986, one of the first things that I have to, had to do it to, was to help organize a conference called How the Brain Works. And in, I think having the chutzpah to say they knew how the brain works in 1986 um, is almost the same as the chutzpah of saying how the brain works in 2021. Um, we have clues, we have inklings, we have ideas, but I, I just feel like there's such a huge gap between what we know and what we don't know, or maybe that's not a gap, it's just a... A difference. Um, so, from my perspective, uh, I just really—I mean, every time, like fMRI or MRI, you begin to get a better way of describing a phenomenon. But I'm not always sure that you're asking meaningful questions or questions that answer things. I mean, if you go back, I remember when Carl Lashley did these experiments with rats, where he he basically spent began taking out bits of cortex and more of cortex and more of cortex, trying to find the place in the brain where memory was taking place. And he, he couldn't. I mean, eventually he described the 
he, he came to the conclusion that the brain had no role in memory, which of course he didn't believe and nobody believes. But I, I just worry sometimes that the, 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 the technology defines the questions in a way that um, can, mis can mislead you about how much you can actually learn from something. And uh, I remember, you know, when I started in, uh, in psychology and, and synapses were like, you know, a switchboard on a, on a, on a television, I mean, not television, telephone switching station, and you plug one in and plug one in, and then you change the plugs. Well, that's not how it works. And then when I was starting in graduate school in the mid-70s, Carl Prebram had this idea about holographic memory, and you don't hear much about that anymore. And and I think, you know, connectomes, they all, they all contribute, and neural nets and things like that, but, but I, I, I really wonder whether the technology sometimes distracts from uh, what's really going on, which is, we're trying to figure that out. I get it. But um, so much of what you do with this new technology is you describe things. Okay, here's what happens in the brain when this happens. And here's what happens in the brain when that happens. And here's what happens in the brain when that happens. And what does it ultimately tell you about how that works? Well, I just, I sometimes feel not that much. That Now, you know, <laughs> I'm, this podcast presumably is going out to a bunch of psychologists who are going to listen and go, what? You know, what does he know? He hasn't been doing this for 30 years or 40 years. And I say, okay, fair enough. Um, I, I may be completely wrong, but, and maybe that's why I got out of research. But I do feel like there's a lot of phenomenology and descriptions, and and I get that it's hard. But I don't really feel like, especially in my field, sleep research. I think that the that the questions are still somehow not come. They're not the right questions, and I, I wish I knew how to revise them or tell people what to do better. I didn't, and so I'm 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 not the one to to say. Well, if you just listen to me, that's not certainly not what I'm saying, but I feel a little discouraged about not being able to answer the question yet, why do we sleep? And maybe it's the wrong question, but I, I can't, I, I keep coming back to the fact that that's just, a, and even more so, why do we dream? There, there was a paper last week about, uh, in current biology by a, several teams around the world that claim that you can actually communicate with somebody who's in REM sleep. These are these lucid dreamers, but not just that they could incorporate what you say to them in a dream, but what they could respond to you. And I, I was looking at it and thinking, well, I mean, this is really super cool. But does it explain why we have REM sleep? No, not, not a chance. Uh, and, and, and that's the more interesting question than what can you do when you're in REM sleep to me? Kind of touches a little bit into another story that's coming out in The Observer, and I wrote a little piece about quantum computing, AI, and modeling the brain, which may become a, a new approach to this. Have you read anything on this? There was an article that our colleague George Musser put out a while ago on this, this whole concept, and you know, it goes back to Feynman basically saying, saying if you want to model nature, you, it has to be quantum. It can't be digital. It can't be the contemporary. So are we getting closer to modeling functions at least uh you know 
<laughs> there's one topic that I, I try to run in the opposite direction as fast as possible when I hear it mentioned, and that's quantum anything. Um, <laughs> I, I've tried on many occasions to even wrap my own brain about around what it means. And, and I, I even learned some of the jargon about entanglement and, and, um, I, I, I can't, I mean, I, I sort of understand it, but I sort of really don't. So I will say that I don't have any, uh, insight about what that might tell us, um, I also, I guess that brings a point up that I meant to mention, which is one, I get very scared when physicists try to explain things about behavior to us. Um, that just makes me nervous. Uh, so, I mean, I like Feynman, but I'm not sure. I just, it makes me nervous when physicists jump in. Um, but the other thing I think that the column uh, in the in the Observer mentioned was this need to um, study representative populations, and I think both from a from a studier and a studyee point of view, that has to that has to become more diverse because there's just so much missed by the way we've been doing things with white affluent. What did what did weird stand for? I think he put it in his article. The 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 people who traditionally are studied in psychology experiments. And I think broadening that will be very useful, but it will also be very useful to broaden the people doing the psychology experiments because they'll bring fresh perspectives uh, that um, the weird folk won't necessarily be able to have. Well, I'm going to take this then to one final question and uh, a bit tied into it because there is quite a bit of psychological impact in the whole COVID-19 epidemic. But I have been reading opinions more recently that we may be shifting from something that's pandemic to something that's endemic. This is going to be something much like the cold or the flu or other things that are just for the foreseeable future. In some way, it's going to be part of our lives. We may have to live with it, even with better vaccine availability. So in the things you've read, the people you've interviewed, how likely is this going to have to be something that's integrated into our collective lives, at least moving forward as far as we can see? I, th I think it's likely. I, I mean, the notion that this virus is going to be eradicated is, I don't think anybody's suggesting that's going to be easy or possible even. So then the question is, what does it mean to have this around forever? Well, probably it means worse things for developing countries than for developed countries, because we will have vaccines and we will have therapies and we will have access to things that are presumably going to be able to um, treat the most severe cases. But it also may be that, uh, yeah, it may be more like flu, where it is one of the causes of death in older people, and we just deal with that. I mean, we just do. Uh, we, all, we encourage people to have uh, vaccinations, but we know some people either aren't or aren't going to be protected because the vaccines are imperfect, and there's going to be whatever, 50 or 60 or 70,000 people a year dying from flu. That may become the new normal. But having 500,000 people a year die, I, I'm hope, I don't think that's going to be normal at all. I think th that number will, will come down. But yes, I, I don't think that, and I, I'm not an expert. That's one of the nice things about being a journalist is you don't really have to be an expert in anything. 
but you talk to experts and and my sense is that we'll not we're not done with this virus well thank you very much for your time today joe i appreciate it always good talking with you and <laughs> hopefully before 2021 is done we'll be able to at least meet up at a common event before uh before the new year well, that'll be swell i'm we had a good time down in uh in chile i'm i'm be glad to see you again well i've also mastered the uh making of pisco sours so i'd be happy to whip <laughs> one up for you <laughs> okay good <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>